Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 4. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 18, verses 9 to 20, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Winners and the Losers. I wonder if you've ever noticed the agony and the ecstasy of sports. It really doesn't matter if you're talking about, you know, the Stanley Cup or the Super Bowl, the World Series, or for that matter, the World Cup of Soccer. When the last game has been played, the contrast between the two sides is stark and even jarring. I mean, go into the locker room of the winners and they're popping corks and they're jumping up and down and they're hugging one another and they're shouting for all they're worth. And when they finally get home, the city out of which they play is going to hold a parade and everyone will cheer the conquering heroes. And on the other hand, go into the locker room of the losers and the atmosphere would make you think that this was the worst team in history. The disappointment and sadness is real. Players sometimes say it will take them a very long time to get over the, the agony of that one final game. But perhaps I've been trite by giving an example of sports. You know, in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul says that we, as Christians, are the aroma of Christ to God. And then he goes on to say that to one were the fragrance of death and to another were the aroma of life. Now, no doubt Paul has in mind a a practice that was found in the city of Rome. Whenever the Roman military won a significant victory over their enemies, the general of the victorious Roman army would, would lead his troops in a triumphal procession through the streets of Rome. Um, first would be the conquering general on his horse. That would be followed by leading officers in his military, followed by his victorious soldiers, and then followed lastly by the condemned prisoners of war who were being brought along in chains and would finally be executed. As the procession moved through the streets of Rome, a fragrance would be released, and that fragrance all depended on your perspective. I mean, to the conquering Roman army, this was the fragrance of victory and the fragrance of life. It's the fragrance of honor. But to the defeated foes of Rome, this was the fragrance of death. The battle was over and your death now lay ahead. And that's what we find as we come to the middle of Revelation 18. When Babylon is destroyed, there will be winners and losers. There will be shouting and dancing and joy in one place and utter heartbreaking despair in another. It it all depends on which team you were on. Now, just to be clear, I've said several things about Babylon. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is the capital city of the empire of the Antichrist. But because his empire's capital is called Babylon, we remember the history of Babylon in the First Testament. Babylon was not only a real historical city, but it also became a symbol of the city of man, that is, the city of man's rebellion to God. But Babylon is also the persecutor of God's people. And so, in Revelation, Babylon is both a symbol of evil, but it's also more than a symbol. It's it's the actual physical city, which is the capital city of the Antichrist. Now, that being said, Revelation 18 is the chapter that announces the fall of Babylon. And like the analogies that I've used, the fall of Babylon will elicit both untold sorrow in some and exuberant joy in others. We're going to have to examine these responses. We're we're going to be required to examine the economic destruction and the suffering of many who relied on this city to not only make a living but also to become rich. Does God not care about the economic well-being of the world? 
And then we're going to examine the rejoicing of the saints. We also need to examine how it can seem right for the saints to rejoice when so much suffering results in the fall of Babylon. Let's start at the beginning. As we work our way through Revelation 18, verses 9 to 19, the verses that depict the sorrow of Babylon's fall, we're going to see three groupings of people who are weeping. We will see first the weeping of the political class, then the weeping of the merchant class or the entrepreneurs, and then finally the weeping of those who are involved in international trade. So let's start with politics. So I'm reading now Revelation 18, verses 9 and 10. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. See, whenever we read about the kings of the earth committing adultery with Babylon, well, we are right to ask, well, what practically can that mean? And of course, this is not the first time that kind of language was used, even here in Revelation 18. Remember back in verse 3, we read that the nations of the earth have drunk the wine of the passion of Babylon's sexual immorality. So when we read that, we might think that Babylon would be a a sensual city encouraging all matter of sexual sins, And, and that may well be. We know that ancient Rome was certainly rife with that kind of a thing. But we also know from the First Testament that adultery is a well-known metaphor used to show what it is like when people abandon the one true God. So, for instance, Hosea 4 verse 12 says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. That's an interesting line. It's a reference to both worshiping idols and the seeking of oracles from pagan gods and symbols. Then as we continue to read in Hosea 4 verse 12, we read, For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. So I hope you see that in God's eyes, to desert him for idols and for pagan spirituality is like playing a prostitute, like like committing adultery. And I have no doubt that's what Revelation 18 is conveying. The religion of Babylon includes a false prophet and is filled with idolatry. It, It demands and allows for worship of everything, provided it's not the worship of the one true God, and provided one calls the Antichrist Lord and God. Do that in Babylon and you're going to live. Now, when it says the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with Babylon, those kings, well, that's not a reference to the 10 kings that are spoken of in Revelation 17 who joined the beast to make war on the lamb. I mean, rather, these kings right here in chapter 18, those kings are those that have not been so open in their devotion as the other 10 but they're enticed by the power and wealth of the beast, and they want a piece of the action. They're they're kind of like politicians who sense which way the wind is blowing, and then they get on board, not out of principle, but out of an instinct that they want to survive and thrive. And then suddenly, in one hour, they see that they've been playing on the wrong team. It's the greatest misjudgment of their lives as they see that they were not backing the winner after all, they were backing the loser. Suddenly, all their survival instincts have failed them, and they are left in despair. As as Babylon burns from her sudden defeat, they realize that they will burn along with it. Now, having described the despair of the kings of the earth, who did not bring good to their people or stand in fear of God, but were opportunists, 
Revelation 18 now turns its attention to the earth's business people, the merchants, the the people who saw Babylon as as a wonderful opportunity to make money. So here I'm reading Revelation 18, verses 11 to 17a. It says, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed for has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you never to be found again. These merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. See, when this passage describes the inventory of the merchants, we should notice two things. Uh, First, the inventory mentioned here is very close to a very similar passage in Ezekiel 27, which is a lamentation over the destruction of the city of Tyre. Tyre was the chief maritime capital of the world at that time and was known for her splendor. And so from that, we are to understand that the capital city of the Antichrist will be as wealthy as the human race has ever seen. The very nature of the kingdom of Antichrist is going to attract business people from around the world. They're going to say to themselves, I mean, we have never seen the opportunity for investment that this city affords. Indeed, the kingdom of the Antichrist will be an economic miracle. It will provide prosperity for the whole earth. And so if your God is money, you're not going to be able to resist this city. And please remember that the Bible doesn't condemn wealth, but it does condemn those for whom both what wealth is and the power of what wealth can do is their God. Closing their eyes to God in righteousness, they say, we're going to make money. Truth in Life magazine is our free bi-monthly ministry magazine. Each issue offers unique Bible teaching articles from Dr. John Newfeld, words of encouragement from Phil Calloway, and a host of other engaging and thoughtful articles from guest authors and pastors designed to challenge and instruct you in God's Word. Along with Bible teaching and engagement articles, Truth and Life magazine includes Dr. Newfeld's Read Through the Bible in a Year guide, updates and news on all Back to the Bible ministry events and activities, and information on all of our free Bible resources, like Truth and Life magazine. If you'd like information on receiving the magazine or any of the resources of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. One last note, the next issue of Truth and Life magazine is available in April, so sign up for your free subscription today. I said that the passage about the inventory of the merchant should cause us to notice two things. The first is that the list is a mirror of Ezekiel 27 and thus tells us that the kingdom of the Antichrist will be fabulously wealthy. 
The second is that the actual list itself, which includes 29 items in which the merchants trade, well, that can easily actually be broken into seven groupings. The first are precious metals and precious stones, that is, gems. The second group are fabrics, especially those that are on the higher end, that is, designer clothes and clothes that only the wealthy can afford. And then third, there are the building and fabricating materials, everything from wood to metals. And then fourth, fragrances and perfumes and so forth. And then fifth, our passage mentions food and the feeding of the world. Sixth, our passage mentions animals, which in this case includes chariots and horses. And I take it that this must include military hardware, as good as the world has. And then finally, seventh, the passage mentions slaves and then adds human souls. Now, a great many of us have been led to believe that slavery is over, but it's really not. In our day, the sex slave trade is but one example as to how human souls are treated as a commodity. The spirit of Babylon has no qualms in grinding up of human souls if there's a profit to be made. You know, I recently read a book about a man that I had never heard of before. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. He was the richest man who had ever lived. His name was Jakob Fugger. He owned a vast textile industry and he made deals with kings to own the entire European copper industry. He lobbied the Vatican to allow him to charge interest on his many loans and eventually had all the kings of Europe, along with the papacy and the priesthood, completely accountable to him. And when John Tetzel sold indulgences, which were pieces of paper that indicated that your sins were forgiven. And if you don't know, these pieces of paper indicated that, that the forgiveness of sins were being sold for money by the church. Now, listen. Wherever indulgences for sins were being sold by the church, an agent of Jakob Fugger accompanied the sale, and Fugger took 50% of all of the wealth that the church scammed out of innocent people. It was to pay back the significant loans that the church had amassed to Fugger. Fugger had the church in his back pocket, and if you in the next life go to the same place that Fugger went, I promise you, you're in hell. And that's what we find here in Revelation. Idolatry, pagan religion, great political power, along with the persecution of God's people, becomes a means for making money. And if we carefully read this section in our text, which we will read in a little while, we will see that not only do the merchants make money, but so do the sailors and the seafaring men. That would seem to indicate that the goods of the merchants are not necessarily being manufactured in Babylon, but rather, like ancient Tyre, Babylon is the place through which all of the world's goods and services must flow. It will be an economic powerhouse that no merchant can avoid. And then having described the economy of Babylon in her wealthy merchant class, Revelation 18 describes their utter shock when in a single hour, Babylon falls. Worse than the stock market collapse of 1929, suddenly the world's great business leaders go from a virtual river of money to complete insolvency. Christ has battled against Babylon, and it is Christ that has prevailed, for he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, like the kings of the earth, the merchants and the entrepreneurs of the earth were backing the wrong horse. They were like men in the American South as one near the end of the Civil War. They were buying up Confederate currency, not knowing that in a short period of time it would be worth less than the paper it was printed on. I was in Romania when their currency collapsed. 
I had gone to use the washroom and I had noticed a large garbage can, literally stuffed to overflowing with Romanian paper money. I just stood there for some time trying to take it in. I'd never seen money in a garbage can with absolutely no one wanting it. But don't you see, such is the end of all who lead a money-centered life. If humility and deferring to others and being faithful to the Lord God and righteousness, if these are secondary to your life of money and power, well, your fate will be the same as the merchants of Babylon in the last hour. You need to repent. You're betting on the wrong horse. Listen carefully to the words of James 5, 3 to 5. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Again, it's important to emphasize that the Bible doesn't condemn wealth, but it does condemn those who use wealth in order to please themselves or who use wealth in order to gain unrighteous power over others. So if you are rich, then be willing to share and be humble and use your wealth for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and resist the lure of idolatry. For to make your money your God is to join the fate of the merchants of Babylon. Now, before we move on, we need to look at the reaction of the world's traders. It's found in verses 17b to 19. It says, And all the shipmasters and the seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. By now we should have recognized that a single phrase has been repeated three times. Back in verse 10, the kings of the earth say, For in a single hour your judgment is come. Then in verse 10, The merchants say, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And now in verse 18, the shipping industry says, for in a single hour, she has been laid waste. When the kingdom of Antichrist falls, it will not fall slowly, moving from, you know, economic boon to a slow disintegration of her culture. When Christ returns and destroys the kingdom of the Antichrist, it will be sudden. And from the perspective of the world, it will seem impossible it will be overwhelmingly surprising. I think an analogy helps here. A man is feeling healthy, goes for a routine medical checkup, finds he has a disease that will kill him quickly. From confidence to utter shock in the space of a half-hour visit to the doctor. Indeed, such is the case of all who put their hope in this world whose future is wrapped up in the kingdoms of this world. Here's a sure word from God. This earth doesn't belong to the Antichrist, nor does it belong to the kings of this earth, nor to the merchants of this earth. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. That means that God owns everything. You own nothing. Serve the Lord with your political power and your material wealth, for your power and your wealth belongs to him. 
when the collapse of this world comes, and it will come without warning, it will come with such speed that time to repent will be passed. Now, after showing us the dismay at the collapse of Babylon, Revelation 18 then shows us the rejoicing of God's people. I'm reading Revelation 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. It seems strange to hear a call from heaven for all of God's people, made holy through Christ, that is, the saints, along with the apostles of our Lord and the great prophets of the past, to join a hymn of praise at the misery that falls on Babylon. Some of us who are more sensitive might say, well, shouldn't this be a call for the saints to weep because of the horrible miseries that fall on Babylon? But, and this is often the case, when we think that way, we fail to remember that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. See, there's in the heart of every child of God something I like to call a holy restlessness. Listen to the godly words of Psalm 74, 10 and 11. How long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Are you shocked? Or listen to Psalm 94, verses 1 to 3. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? In Revelation 18, we have an answer to the psalmist's question. In a single hour, the exaltation of the wicked will be brought down, and in that day, the righteous will rejoice before their God. John, I'm reminded as you're speaking, the the, the sense sometimes that we're not winners at all. We're actually losers as Christians, as a church. And and I think it's because we take our eye off the ball, off the long game. We start to think of ourselves with all the stuff around us that we just can't win. But, you know, God is victorious in the end. Yeah, yeah. How important is to know, you know, I've said it before and I said it in this message, but I'm going to say it again. You know, we as believers in Christ are on the side of history. History is going in the direction of Jesus and not in the direction of the kingdoms of this world. Let's just repeat that as often as we can. So, you know, when things get tough, not to think of ourselves as simply, oh, no, you know, I'm I'm kind of just hanging on rather than to think of ourselves as, you know, this is where God is directing all of history and God has allowed me to stand on his team. I mean, what a wonderful Ben. We ought to rejoice every day because our future is so bright. What a great message. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Dr. Neufeld wrote, there is a line near the end of the book of Revelation that sounds altogether intriguing. Revelation 21.5 says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. All things. What can that mean? Well, according to the book of Revelation, this present world will die. Now, that's not just a theological statement. It's a statement meant to bring comfort to suffering Christians. This month, Dr. Neufeld presents the final volume of his study on the book of Revelation entitled The Triumph of the Lamb. Focusing on the final five chapters, you'll be uniquely engaged and encouraged to discover the incredible plan God has for eternity. 
And for this month only, we want to make the final volume available to you for only $19 or the entire four-volume series for $75. Both offers include shipping and taxes. So call today for The Triumph of the Lamb at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.